0: Hey! What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Today in Space. Uh, This is the month of April, which means it's the April of Pluto. So that's what this whole month is going to be. About Pluto. Fuck yeah. So, before we get into that, just a little bit of business. If you want to help support all the awesome stuff we're doing here, go to this week's episode or the homepage of todayinspace.net forward slash home. And click the Amazon link and do your Amazon online shopping like you normally do. And you're helping support us in the process. It's simple, it costs you nothing, and we get to do more awesome stuff thanks to you. And I can't appreciate, can't show you my appreciation <laughs> any more than by saying thank you so much. This is something I love to do, and you guys helping support helps me do that more and more. And if you're really hardcore today and space fan, you can also go out and pick up t- uh, Pluto the Misunderstood, which is mine and John's song that we made for our first flyby to Pluto, Pluto, Pluto. All right. Before I start messing up more words, let's start the show. Woo! Space. In, space. In space Welcome everybody To the April of Pluto Week one all, That's right, all month We are going to be talking about Pluto We're going to be talking about the five research papers that came out And all the new stuff that we're Not only learning about Pluto But learning about Pluto for the first time You know, when I was working on this podcast last year and really when I was first getting into it, the opportunity of us going to Pluto to a part of the solar system we've never been to before. And we made a song about it. And you'll hear that song at the end of the episode. And, you know, a lot of people were really pissed or overly emotional about the fact that Pluto was no longer a planet. Because We reclassified it, and it just didn't meet the the parameters of the equation. And people got really offended, I guess, about that. But the point I am still making, and I was trying to make at the time, is how can you get upset about a planet you know nothing about? You know, we knew absolutely nothing about Pluto. The best pictures, images we had of Pluto through the Hubble Space Telescope, was two dots, essentially, of light. One being Pluto, the other one being Karen. So, it's very hard for me to sit back and listen to people complain or, you know, I'm not talking about the people who legitimately have an issue and think that, you know, the classification is too stringent, and they have a logical reason behind it. Listen, I'm, I'm all for an actual debate, but when it, it goes past the debate and is purely emotional, I really just have to sit there and wonder, what happened? Why do you care so much about something you really didn't know? Yeah, it came at the end of the song that you learned when you were growing up, probably learned in elementary school or junior high, about, you know, the planets. You learned a song But the weird thing is, you know, most of the time people get this offended, they just kind of let it go after a few days. But for whatever reason, Pluto is this weird, mysterious system as we're figuring it out now. And we know way more about it now than we knew about it not even a year ago. We knew nothing. And now we're actually going to find out what Pluto is. We're going to learn what the Pluto system is and be able to classify it properly. I think that's the most important thing to take away from this. So if you were one of those people, which, let's be honest, most of us were, that when you found out Pluto wasn't a planet anymore, you got kind of choked up and maybe a little upset. But do Pluto a favor And actually learn what it is. You know, you wouldn't just let some stranger into your house without knowing who they were. You know, how can you let a planet slash dwarf planet into your heart if you don't even know what it is? How do you know what you're loving? You don't even know. So let's learn about it. All right? Let's kick it off with... What I think are the most, the most exciting findings uh, from the five research paper that were research papers that were released, and really get into this and let's 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 do some science. Pluto. So, where did these five research papers come from? Well, to start, they were authored by the New Horizons scientists, the actual scientists that were on the mission. So, I mean, as far as people that know Pluto, I mean, you really have no one else to go to. I mean, they are the experts. They are the first people to have really looked at what Pluto really is. And if you've been following along, they've been just as shocked and amazed as we all have been. And if there's anyone who could really be as excited as they should be, it's those people, man. And they're amazing people. I got to meet uh, a few of them at the NASA social event I went to last year that was about New Horizons going to Pluto. So Pluto has a very special place in my heart. So don't be thinking that just because I'm making you feel bad that you are feeling bad that Pluto is not a planet doesn't mean I don't care. I care. But I want us to make sure we're right. All right? I'm looking out for you. I don't want you to look like an idiot. All right? We need to learn about Pluto. So, the five, the first comprehensive set of papers, as it says in this article, which is the first one I found off of NASA, uh, they were uh, published in the journal Science, which uh, has a lot of really great uh, research papers and... It's something I'd like to get into later uh, in my career, uh, once I have a little more, let's say, just uh, money. Because <laughs> uh, you have to pay monthly to be able to access these papers. So, um, I mean, you you get research at the, at the tip of your fingers, you know, the bleeding edge of research. the The first thing that comes out that then later decides where science is going. Pretty exciting, right? So... This is the first steps for all this Pluto research, is to be published in a a journal like this. Uh, It makes it credible. Now to quote um, what I believe, yes, this is from uh, Alan Stern, who is the New Horizons principal investigator, who, if you go back to the early NASA social New Horizons slash Pluto episode, uh, you heard him talk in that episode. Uh, it's just a fun episode. I would, if you haven't listened to it, go listen to it. But, to quote him, These five detailed papers completely transform our view of Pluto, revealing the former astronomer's planet to be a real world with diverse and active geology, exotic surface chemistry, a complex atmosphere, puzzling interaction with the sun, and an intriguing system of small moons. Now, if you really wanted a short, quick, concise thing of what those research papers have shown us, Alan Stern just gave it to you right there. You know, those things he's talking about, you know, the diverse and active geology, the chemistry, surface chemistry, the atmosphere, the way the sun plays a role, and just how... Interesting of a system this small moon system really is. These are the things we're going to be talking about later this month. Now, if you're new to New Horizons, or you just plain have too many things to keep in your mind, New Horizons took nine and a half years and went three billion miles. Launching faster and traveling farther than any spacecraft has gone to reach its primary target. It went by Pluto on July 14th, 2015. And the New Horizons team has collected over 50 gigabytes of data on the spacecraft's storage system. And (laughs) it did all that in nine days of going through the planetary system and is still to this day giving us all of that information that those 50 gigabytes that were stored on board it's still sending us that through space because as much as we forget just how massive infinity is three billion miles even for light to travel takes a while there's an actual delay i actually I'm actually kind of upset I didn't look it up for this episode. But if you go to those Pluto episodes from NASA Social on the show, it's just, it's just mind-boggling, the delay that has to happen. Because like, data, that data is traveling basically at the speed of light. So there's still a delay on that. I mean, that just goes to show you how just incredible it is that we went that far. All right, let, let let me find how long the delay actually is, because this is just gonna this is just gonna piss me off. Pluto! All right, through the magic of post production, I have an answer. Only seconds after I pose the question, <laughs> which is much better than real life. Okay, so moving at the speed of light, it takes four and a half hours for one image. To get from New Horizons back to us. And if we want to tell New Horizons what to do. We take nine hours. From the time we realized. Oh we don't want to do that. We want to do this. Let's send it a message. It's nine hours before it can do anything. If you send it right away. So the sheer massiveness of this mission. And the fact that. It's done so much. So quickly. On its f- on our first time there it really is mind-boggling and i i know some of you who've been following are probably like oh my god we already know this let's get to new stuff i think it's extremely important for us to realize just how amazing this mission actually is because people who've worked on it did a fantastic job and it's a testament to our space program our planetary program and all the people who were involved in that mission um, I think it's very important to point out. So, thank you, New Horizons team, for doing everything you've done, and your continued work for helping us truly understand what Pluto really is. Thank you. Now, let's get into the top New Horizons findings reported in science, because NASA's very good to all of us, and they gave us a nice, quick top list compressing all the crazy information and super technical data that the research team has given us and giving us a nice not layman's term but a just hey I wanted to know what they found out without you know potentially ruining my eyesight from <laughs> staring too closely at data I don't understand so number 1 on the list from NASA the age-dating of Pluto's surface through crater counts has revealed that Pluto has been geologically active throughout the past 4 billion years. Further, the surface of Pluto's informally named Sputnik Planum, a massive ice plane larger than Texas, is devoid of any detectable craters and estimated to be geologically young. No more than 10 million years old. So what does that mean to the rest of us, right? What is crater counting? How do they, that's how they guess the age of planets? Or planetary objects? Yes. It's one of the tools they use. There's actually an entire, I went, I went deep on the internet this week trying to figure out uh, crater counting. Because I've heard it. I heard people talk about it, but I I didn't really know. So, I wanted to make sure I could tell you guys what it was. So, creator counting, there's like actually like whole like societies of scientists that specifically like they go on field trips, they have students, they have people working for them, and they go for lack of a better term on field trips to craters on Earth so that they can learn more about craters. But the part we're really talking about, which is how do they age date a planet through crater counting? So the idea is if a planet's surface has lots of craters, right? The equation they use to figure out the, how old the planet is basically has a constant that says... Over this amount of years, you know, there's going to be a constant of asteroids hitting the planet. So, arguably, the more craters there are, um, the older the planet is. Because it's been around long enough that it's been hit that many times. Right? And this is this is to make a really complicated thing easy. <laughs> so, there's probably... If you really want to learn more about it, uh, there's plenty of stuff out there. But that's just to kind of get you going. So... More craters means older. Now, when we first started seeing pictures of Pluto, not only was it shocking because it was such a vibrant and just unique-looking planet surface, you know what they are talking about with Pl- Sputnik Planum, and they're talking about how it's devoid of any detectable craters, means that it's geologically young. No more than 10 million years old. So even though it may be hit with asteroids, the fact that the geology, the the planets, the, uh, the planet itself is moving and active, which would be something that a young planet would do. If it was an old planet, or at least as old as we thought it was, geologically it would have no activity and it would just be splattered, with craters. So, as this geology is moving around and stays active, any craters that might hit it that are there are also covering it up. So there's that uncertainty with crater counting. You know, if if it's geologically active, then the craters aren't going to show up as much because the the surface is always moving and changing. So that was one of the flaws I saw with creator counting. I could be wrong, but it seemed a little strange to me. Um, but it's, it's a way of, it's, it's just like one of those things. It's like, it's like, I can obviously pick it apart, but I don't have a better answer for guessing the age of a planet. So I'm not going to take it too seriously. <laughs> and unless you do too, you know, it's one of our great tools at figuring out how old stuff in the universe really is. You know, another big thing that I was reading about crater counting that recently has become a a topic of interest is it seems that when craters, uh, when craters, when things seem to hit a planet, you know, asteroids, comets, there's a big crater that happens. And then even thousands of miles away, little pieces of that crater of the asteroid or comet that made that crater can also still happen. So having just a count of the actual craters might not actually be that great of a tool because one asteroid could come in, hit the planet, and create, just for argument's sake, a thousand craters. And if you're going off of, you know, this many craters means this old If it was only one that made a thousand craters, then you are not accurately measuring the age of a planet. But we're talking the age of a planet, which is in the millions of years. You know, this one is geologically young, right? And that's no more than 10 million years old. And based on the research, Pluto has been geologically active throughout the past 4 billion years. So one or a thousand over a billion years really doesn't mean much. I mean, all right, let's let's just grab the calculator here for a second, right? So what's the difference between one four billionth All right, we're talking zero, right? Even if you go to ten decimals, it's still zero. Now, what about a thousand four billions? still zero so. Although it's fun to pick things apart, sometimes, unless you have a better answer, you really just need to shut up. So I guess what I'm telling myself is it's a nice idea, but (laughs) Uh, either way, we have a tool to figure out how old the planet is. It's called Crater Counting, and I think it's kind of
1: cool.
0: Next on the list, we're going to go down to number seven, and before I talk about this, I want to bring up something that uh, Alan Stern had talked about, I believe at the NASA social event and in countless press conferences, but he was bringing up the idea that you know heading to the Pluto system for the first time, there was a an actual safety check to make sure that New Horizons made it through Pluto with out getting hit by dust or tiny particles or... I mean, nobody really knew what was going on with Pluto. We always assumed there was some kind of debris field because it was created out there in the Kuiper Belt. So, or at least that's what we have good reason to believe. So given that it's a belt and that the system was created from some kind of collision, it's safe to say that there could be some particles and there's really no way to know unless once it gets through to tell New Horizon to turn back towards Earth and say, Hey, hey, I'm okay. And nine hours later, no, sorry, four and a half hours later, we would find out. Luckily, it was fine. New Horizons made it through the Pluto system just fine, in case you missed it. And that's what brings me to number seven. Before the flyby, the presence of Pluto's four small moons raised concerns about debris hazards in the system. But the Venetia Bernie, sorry, let me start there again. The Venetia Bernie student dust counter only counted a single dust particle within five days of the flyby. This is similar to the density of dust particles in free space in the outer solar system, about six particles per cubic mile, showing that the region around Pluto is in fact not filled with debris. Now what does that mean to me? What I thought of, okay, was wow. Imagine that. A place that we for with all our knowledge and all of our understanding of of different planetary systems and really what we've done fifty years of space travel. We we have at least some kind of knowledge, but we still underestimate the mass just emptiness of space that this entire belt this Kuiper belt that is at the edge of our solar system in the third zone right that is supposed to be filled with debris there's this planetary system called the Pluto system that despite being created and being relatively young from our observations, has only one, we only read one particle, one single dust particle, during a five-day flyby. Which means, at the very least, the path (laughs) that New Horizons took through, essentially, the center of the Pluto system, means that the system is, well for the most part has no debris which brings up an interesting fact for its classification because if the Pluto system itself doesn't have any debris or a single dust particle that was found and has a similar density as free space in the outer solar system then the classification that made Pluto not a planet the one that says that in its orbit, it must have nothing in its path. If there's no dust potentially, well, if there's no dust around it in its own influence, then really, if it's in the Kuiper belt and the entire... Now, this is this is, this is just me thinking. I don't necessarily know this, but let's think out loud for a second here. If the Kuiper belt is part if the Pluto system is part of the Kuiper belt, right, and it's orbiting, then technically its orbit will stay relatively with the Kuiper belt. Unless the influence of the sun's gravity is making it orbit in and out of the Kuiper belt, which could be the case. But if the area where Pluto is, has no dust, then there's still a chance that Pluto can still be considered a planet. If we can figure out what lies in its path, its orbital path, we'll actually be able to know if Pluto is considered a planet in the new definition. So Pluto lover, Pluto planet lovers, you actually have some scientific uh, room here. So, make sure to make sure to stay tuned to that because I mean, granted, if we had to travel 3 billion miles just to get to it, I don't know how we're going to be able to track its orbit. I mean, it, Pluto's orbit takes, oh my god, it's it's in the scale of hundreds of years. To be specific, it's 248 years just to orbit the sun, which would mean <laughs> If it took us almost 10 years to get to Pluto, right? Let's just say we launched something today. It takes us 10 years to get to Pluto again. Right? If we had something ready today. And we have to travel 248 years with Pluto. You know, keep an orbiter, a surveyor essentially with with Pluto. It would have to last 248 years for us to truly know that there's anything in its orbit. But I'm sure there's much better, more efficient ways of of doing that. But I can't imagine finding, like, like, literally looking at where Pluto's orbit should be and seeing if there's anything there. I mean, if we thought from Earth it was filled with dust and debris and we only found one freaking particle on the way through it, I don't know how we're ever going to find out that answer. So it's a bit of a standstill. But there's hope. You just have to wait realistically about 300 years to find out. Unless we figure out and use SCIENCE to find a better way. Let's move forward.
1: Pluto. Pluto!
0: All right, let's start with the third and last bit of info from this research that we'll do this week, okay? Number nine on the list, the last on the list, actually, the top nine, if you believe it. Number nine says the high albedos or reflectiveness of Pluto's small satellites about 50 to 80% are entirely different from the much lower albedos of the small bodies in the general Kuiper Belt population, which range from about 5 to 20% in reflectiveness. This difference lends further support to the idea that these satellites were not captured from the general Kuiper Belt population, but instead formed by agglomeration in a disk of material produced in the aftermath of the giant collision that created the entire Pluto satellite system. So if I'm reading that correct, there was some massive collision that happened that helped create the Pluto satellite system. And based on the reflectiveness of the material, which albedo is a very space word, it doesn't get more space than that. If we actually go to Google here, albedo is the fraction of solar energy or short wave radiation reflected from the earth back into space because we created the definition on earth. It is a measure of the reflectivity of the Earth's surface. Ice, especially with snow on top of it, has a high albedo. Most sunlight hitting the surface bounces back towards space. So basically, what the albedo, what the research is showing us is that Pluto's small satellites reflect sunlight from 50 to about 80%. Which contradicts the original idea that the small satellites in the Pluto system were created from the Kuiper Belt. But the Kuiper Belt population, albedo or reflectiveness, only ranges about 5-20%. to Which means it's made of a different material. At least most likely. So, essentially, this Pluto system was either made from two different worlds or bodies that collided and then created Pluto and Charon, and then the smaller systems, because Pluto is a binary system. You know, the gravity of Pluto and Charon are so connected, just like our Earth and Moon, that they are one and the same. They're a single unit. Or the technical term is binary system. So. There must have been some kind of collision. To create those two. And then. The small satellites around it. Formed. Because they were able to stay. Tight knit. Within the system. And it just makes the story of how pluto came to be so much more interesting you know i don't know about you but really the way i always thought of pluto was this distant old dead place it was a place far from us so why should it have any life or anything interesting if it's so far away it's, it's so far away from our sun. How could anything interesting be happening in this dark, crazy, mysterious third zone of our solar system? We can't, we can't even really see it. We can't see it at all, especially since it only reflects light about 5 to 20%. It's essentially invisible. And the only reason we knew about it was because a guy, by the name of Kuiper, envisioned that it could be there. And then through what I assume is some kind of simulation, we said, okay, based on how things move around and and gravity and our solar system in general, we know that there's something out there called the Kuiper Belt. We just have this idea of what it looks like, kind of like a, a protective barrier of asteroid material. You know, and now we're learning that there's an entire planetary system that's made of different material that's not even in that belt. So, what else is hiding in the Kuiper Belt? What other treasures are hidden in the mysterious third zone of our solar system that we would never even know to look because? It's essentially invisible. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's extremely exciting. That's some old school adventuring. I mean, you know, sometimes it feels like on Earth, you know, we've we've found everything, but we always get surprised. There's always some nook or cranny on the planet we've never seen before, even with Google Earth and all the things we have today. Imagine an entire belt of objects. It's just, it's just fascinating to me. And to learn that Pluto is this more unique, more original thing than it ever was before makes me feel so excited for the future and what we're going to learn and what's out there. You know, I don't, I don't know if, if, if human beings in general are really good at grasping the idea of infinity and grasping the idea of the universe, never mind a solar system. We're not even talking galaxies here, people. We're talking about our own solar system, the influence of our own sun, which on a galactic universal scale is minuscule. And we're getting that wrong. Now, some people think that that's just another example of how not smart we are, or how unimportant we are, they take the extreme pessimistic view. I take the extreme optimistic view because I see opportunity. I see a chance that, well, more importantly, I see that this race to understand our solar systems and our galaxies and our universe is a challenge that we can never beat, which Is exciting. That is so exciting to me. Because. That means. We'll always have something to learn. In your own lifetime. You will never run out of things. That you can learn. That means you can keep the fun rolling. You'll never get bored. It's going to be a lot of hard work. But. But. If you're out there trying to discover new things and trying to go for it, then this is the ultimate challenge. You know, we can start really going for this kind of stuff. You know, and our first step into the third zone of the solar system is Pluto, who arguably is the king of the Kuiper belt. I mean, we're starting large, people. I mean, we are starting at the top. Or so that's what we believe. Because that's all we've seen so far. But I think we can just start there. You know? We don't need to we don't need to eat the whole cake all at once. Let's not choke ourselves to death, all right? Let's start small. Little cupcake one planetary system at a time. Pluto! Alright, let's take this chance at this point in the episode before we close up here to give you a little bit of space news. Uh, Really, the most recent stuff. uh, Tomorrow, Friday, SpaceX is launching CRS-8, I believe. And... The number, not the mission. They are definitely attempting a launch tomorrow. Uh, They will be launching a bunch of scientific equipment, one of which is the BEAM, or the Bigelow Aerospace, the inflatable attachment for the ISS. It's going to be a basically one-person big... Let me pull up the article here. It's a one-person large expandable structure that's going to be able to add on. And the whole idea is if we can start getting these expandable structures to be actual space habitats or things that we can use, then we don't have to transport and lift up these extremely heavy metal um, constructions from orbit because that's one of the biggest struggles with with putting something into space is launching it off the ground. You need to not only have a vehicle capable of doing that, but you also need the money. And funding's always tight. It always is. So having an option that is lighter and can compact, excuse me, that can compact and you can put more stuff in there. I mean, that makes living in space more realistic and makes living on Mars is more realistic. So it's a big step forward. um, A big test to see what we'll be able to do. And this structure is going to be tested over the next year, I believe. And we're going to have our astronauts go in there. Uh, I'm sorry. It's a two year demonstration. And it's going to test the radiation levels. Can it actually protect astronauts? You know, Is it worth it? And they're going to be going in, I think it's four times, four to six times over the next two years to test the ability. And, and there's an article here that's really great. It's got some great GIFs to show you. The first one is possible expansion scenarios. So they actually don't know how it's actually going to expand when it gets installed with Canadarm2. So they have these four different ways that it could expand. And it's just another example of we're not supposed to be in space. So let's keep testing this so we know what to expect. Because it's not going to work like it does on Earth. So this is a brand new technology. And I'm very excited to see what happens next. So good luck to SpaceX. They've been kicking ass. Keep doing it. And Bigelow Aerospace, who is another uh, private company to look for, Uh, This is their project, and I really hope it goes well for them. And we've got the next two years to check it out. And don't worry. I did not forget. It is the first episode of the month, which means we have another segment of... Look up! This month, this week, we're talking about another constellation, a little bit of some more Greek mythology. This week, I figured, let's go back to something everyone knows, which is the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper, or Ursa Major and Ursa Minor. However you really learned it, um, it's something that most people are aware of in the sky. It's a constellation probably more, maybe more than Orion. It's about as well-known as any other constellation. So, I don't know about you guys, but when I was growing up, I never learned the constellation as a bear, because I think that's the one that most people know, and it is part of the Greek mythology, is the bear. But, I never learned it as that. I always, I don't remember if, someone had to explain it to me, because I know I didn't figure this out on my own. But, I think it was my science teacher in elementary school, if I had to take a guess. But, Either way, the way I learned it is that the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper are ladles or dippers, right? So the Little Dipper always pours into the Big Dipper. So that's how I always knew once I could find one, I could always find the other. So uh, next time you look at that, I always thought that was a really cool way to look at it. But let's get into the actual Greek mythology of it, okay? So, let's think about it. Greek mythology, it's an animal. That probably means someone was transformed into an animal. But who would be responsible of such a thing? Hmm. Let's see. Who would even have the power to do something like that? Well, if you're thinking about it, you're probably right, especially if you've listened to last month's. It, of course, has to do with my boy Zeus. And his insatiable appetite for women. I mean, seriously. I mean, I, endless stories of Zeus trying to get it on with human ladies. And trying to make sure that Hera, his wife, did not find out. But Hera's... Not some stupid bimbo. She knows exactly what he was doing. And as it turns out, the reason it's a bear is because Zeus had to transform somebody into a bear. And this is why. So, like I said before, this is just another story of love and jealousy, as uh, the article for this week says. Which is, of course, a very common theme in Greek mythology. But in this story, Zeus was pretty much just having girl, human girlfriends all over the place. In this case, it was a girl named Callisto, and he used to go visit her a lot. You know, she was a an outdoorsy type. You know, they used to go on walks in the woods. You know, maybe they went mountain climbing, maybe went for a hike. But one time, Hera was just had enough of that shit and was ready to call out Zeus on cheating on her. And Zeus was like, oh shit, I gotta hide this girl. So he did what he's very good at and transformed her into a huge bear. And that way, when Hera approached, she just saw Zeus walking by himself in the forest. And that there was just some bear. Seems a little ridiculous. Seems a little bit extreme. You know, you could just come out with it and just say, listen, you know, I think we need a break. Uh, I'm just into something new right now. But nope, that's not how Zeus did it. Zeus would rather turn someone into a bear... And hide it from his wife. So that's what he did. And unfortunately, because of course karma will always come to bite you in the ass, and pretty much in every Greek mythology, every action has a reaction. uh, Callisto's son was also in the woods at the same time, and her son Archis was a hunter, and he was out hunting. He saw the big bear and took a shot, aiming at the heart, like a good hunter, to cleanly kill the animal, and and most importantly, to protect himself, and then actually hits the bear, great shot, and as soon as he takes a shot and the bear is dying, it starts changing back into his mother. And Arcus starts screaming and yelling and, and is just taken over with all this anger and confusion. And Zeus heard this, left Olympus, and went to go make things right, or at least as right as he could. And still keeping his secret. So... In order to do that, Zeus changed Callisto back into the bear and made her the largest constellation in the northern sky, and turned Arcus into the smaller constellation that is the smaller bear, or the Little Dipper, or Ursa Minor. Now the good thing is that Arcus and his mother Callisto got to live, or exist, eternally in the skies. But, unfortunately, uh, well, I mean, this is why you just don't deal with gods. I mean, you know, clearly, anytime you get involved with Zeus, either someone's going to be changed into some kind of animal or someone's going to die. But, I mean, seriously. I mean, we've only done, what, three months of this? And in two of the three, someone has died... Because of something that a god did. You know, it was Orion. Thanks to Apollo. And in this time, Callisto, who was just seeing a nice Greek guy, happened to be a Greek god, and ends up getting killed because she was changed into a bear. This is Greek mythology, people. The important thing to take away is that The stars gave people a storybook To tell Crazy stories And I don't know about you But I find them thoroughly entertaining Sometimes It's laughable To think wow this is what people really thought And other times It is kind of you know In a crazy way A good way to talk about Human interactions And how people deal with things You know it's they're not stories of these great heroes doing great things they're stories of people doing people things humans being humans even though they were gods you know they still had extremely intense human characteristics and it's it's really cool to get into this every month uh i hope you guys are enjoying these Uh, I know I am. So that's another Greek mythology for you uh, this month on the Big Dipper. So now you know. Now you know the story behind the Big Dipper, at least as the Greeks, the ancient Greek mythology says it. Pluto! So to close out, I have some final words on this first week of the April of Pluto. Pluto. You know, it was almost a year ago, we wrote the song about Pluto, Pluto the Misunderstood. And that was really, that's really the point of my message to you, is let's not get caught up in our emotions. Let's not get caught up in our preconceived notions. Let's actually understand what we're dealing with here. You know, don't give me a song and dance about how you're upset that Pluto isn't a planet anymore. Do you even know what classifies a planet? Do you even know what Pluto has on it? What it, what it looked like before a year ago? You didn't. You had no idea. The best representation of Pluto we had was a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Or at least some kind of Hanna-Barbera cartoon. I don't remember where it's from. But that was our best interpretation of Pluto. So please, let's not bullshit ourselves, people. Let science do its thing. Let us find out what it really is. And that's what this whole month is about. We're dedicating April to Pluto, damn it. And to finish this week off, I've got a song that me and my friend John made last year to encapsulate what it was like, what was the mentality before we knew anything about Pluto. It's available on iTunes. It's available on Spotify, YouTube, pretty much any place you can get music, it's available. Thank you for everyone who's bought it. I'm so... Amazed that anyone bought it. And I thank everyone who's played it on Spotify, who's played it on YouTube. Thank you. for me and John. I mean, that. just so happy anyone would like to listen to it. And the crazy shit we have to say. <laughs> and if you'd like, if you haven't, by all means, there's plenty of ways, whether it's SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes... Whatever fits your budget, whatever you can do, I appreciate it with all my heart. So in closing, have a great week. Go kick some ass, spread love, spread science, and have a great week. But now, I give to you a special Pluto podcast EQ of Pluto the Misunderstood. to the definition of the word of the planet. Planet. planet, those classifications are as follows. One, one a celestial, body, celestial must body must be or in orbit around its sun. Two, the planet itself must be round and, and shape. And, and three, the planet must planet. have nothing in its cap. So, Pluto passed all but the last classification and was, and was demoted. demoted. <laughs> <laughs> Pluto has, has been, been a, a victim, victim of victim injustice? injustice, please, please, do me a, do favor. Me a favor, go, find, go a mirror. find a mirror, now look at yourself now and be honest. be honest, why do you why care? care, did someone, did someone not love you? love you, who hurt you, people, people? We, got we got it wrong, it shouldn't matter, it shouldn't what, it matter is.
1: what it is, because this, this is Pluto. Is Pluto.